Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today's interview is with Warren Throckmorton, who is a professor of psychology at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. He's also author, along with Michael Coulter, of the book Getting Jefferson Right, Fact-Checking Claims About Our Third President. And we're going to talk a lot about many of the claims that Christian nationalists make, specifically about our founders, and we'll have a special focus on Thomas Jefferson. So if you are a history buff or you just want to know more about how American Christian nationalists will curate certain messages or distorted facts about American history and how you can better engage those claims and those distorted facts, this is a great interview for you. So without further ado, here is my interview with Warren Throckmorton. So, Warren, you wrote a book called uh, Getting Jefferson Right. This is back in 2012. And my understanding was this is an attempt to um, kind of uh, add some truth to some of the uh, untruth that had been spread around, specifically around the founders, but also around Jefferson. Tell us about the book and what motivated you to write it and what what you see going on now, kind of in our current climate now, 10 years later. Yeah, uh, I have been, uh, here's the real, let me go back uh, even further than uh, my fact-checking, David Barton. Uh, I uh, had, uh, in 2009, started to be very concerned about a legislative effort in the country of Uganda. Uh, There was, um, uh, in the early part of that year, an ex-gay conference of um, uh, people from the United States had gone to Uganda, and they were uh, they were there, uh, kind of whipping up uh, sentiment against gays. There, it wasn't just a theological conference. In fact, it wasn't really theological at all. It was uh, a conference uh, claiming that you could convert gay people to straight, and in the in the process of that, there was there were a lot of stereotypes about gays that were spread there, and they were it was a pretty receptive audience there. They had a lot of pretty negative feelings about gay people, and I had been at one time a supporter of conversion therapy. I'd been supporter of the idea that gays could change, and had uh, done a documentary on that subject. I uh, after the documentary, I had uh, changed my views because. Some of the people in the documentary actually went back to being gay, and so I I uh, uh, I had uh, restudied the matter and interviewed a lot of people again, and I found a lot of academic fraud in the literature that said gays could change. So I I changed my views. I didn't um, I didn't necessarily change my theological perspective. I just as a psychologist, I just uh, came to understand that. Uh, things are way more complex than I thought they were, and that sexual orientation uh, was uh, more durable than I thought it was, and that we needed to rethink all of that. So when I knew that this conference was taking place in Uganda, I was pretty worried about the potential outcome of that. I was worried that uh, there might be, uh, oh, I don't know, that 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 gays would be in danger, you know, physically 
for their safety. As it turns out, I was right. Uh, the legislation legislator there, the uh, uh, parliament, passed a law making uh, pa- passed a, uh, a created a bill. They didn't pass the law right away, but they created a bill that would make homosexuality a capital offense. And their rationale for it was that they were doing God's work, that this was what God would want because they were a Christian country. Now, a lot of people in the United States say things like that, that we're a Christian country. I don't think they realize that other countries think that too. (laughs) And Uganda was using that as a rationale, that uh, they're a Christian nation, and so they should legislate Christianly. And I thought, what, it's killing gays? Is that part of being a Christian country? And I I was uh, new to this whole idea of of uh, dominionism, and uh, I was new kind of to the idea of reconstructionism. I, I and so I started researching all of this. Like, who thinks that we should make the Mosaic Law part of, or, or our civil law should reflect Mosaic Law, that the Old Testament law? Well, I'll, I'll make a long story a little bit longer. I uh, stumbled onto uh, Rushtuni, Russus J. Rushtuni, and the Theonomus, and uh, some of those people. But then I eventually got to a guy named David Barton, who thought that the separation of church and state was a myth. And uh, he wrote a book, uh, something like that, Myth of Separation. And uh, a lot of the people in Uganda were referring back to these, these kind of ideas that uh, there is no separation of church and state, the Americans have it wrong, that, uh, and Christians in America, they told me, they really are with us on this. They would like to see the government reflect the, the biblical law. Well, so anyway, I... I uh, came to, uh, to understand that uh, David Barton's teaching was behind a lot of this thinking. So I'm like, who is this guy? And I feel like I don't know anything. You know, I've been a Christian almost all my life, and like, I don't even know who this guy is. So I research him, and I, I start to understand that he's using history to make this case, and a lot of the history isn't even right. So I start fact-checking his claims, and uh, he says that uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were practically evangelical Christians, and they believed the Trinity, and I'm like, what? I I know better than that, and I'm not even a historian. So I start fact-checking and reading the primary sources, talking to my historian colleagues here at Grove City College, and they say, oh, David Barton, we know who that is. He's a, you know, he, he's a, a grifter. He, he just tells these people what they want to hear. And this is at my Christian college. So anyway, but I need to know it for myself. And so I'm reading the primary sources and debunking these claims and writing blog posts on this. And then I find out he's bringing out a book on Thomas Jefferson. So I think, okay, I've already done some of these claims on Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to write a rebuttal. So I, I, uh, I write the company and ask for an advanced copy. I'm thinking they'll never send me one because he already knows that I'm, you know, not his best friend. But anyway, they do. They send me an advanced copy. 
And so I'm thinking uh, maybe I've already debunked some of these things. Lo and behold, I had. I already had done a bunch of them. And so I enlist a colleague at Grove City College, Michael Coulter. I ask him, would you, would you go in with me and write this book? So by the time his book came out, we had just about finished ours, getting Jefferson right. And it's, it uh, goes through all these claims about Thomas Jefferson to try to make Jefferson into some evangelical Christian. And we debunk these, these claims uh, that uh, Jefferson uh, created a New Testament of his own to give to the Indians. That when he uh, went through and uh, cut out parts of the, the Gospels, he didn't like that he left in the supernatural parts. He didn't do that. That uh, he uh, wanted to make sure that everybody had Bibles. And I mean, there's so many things. So, and there were the, the Congress uh, created the first English language Bible and paid for it with taxpayer funds, stuff like that. Anyway, all these things that that he uses to say that there was no separation of church and state that involved Jefferson, you know, we wanted to debunk those. And so we put them in a book called Getting Jefferson Right. And it all started back with me figuring out that this teaching about getting the, uh, the church and state doctrine, you know, to, to debunking that was something that Barton was responsible for. And, uh, you know, he wanted to use the, he calls him the least religious founding father, you know, Thomas Jefferson. He wanted to make him into some devout evangelical. And, uh, you know, we, we just wanted to, uh, to try to get the truth out on that. So there's a lot of revisionist history that we see, especially in Christian nationalist circles. Yes, in America. Right. A retelling of history in a way that favors their agenda. Yes. What is it that they are striving to accomplish by retelling American history in that way? Well, I think that the the idea is a kind of a simple one, that if the founders did it a certain way, if they meant a certain thing, we should be doing the same thing today. So if Jefferson really didn't mean that church and state should be separate, then, then we shouldn't try to keep church and state separate now. And uh, so instead of the uh, Supreme Court decisions that, you know, invoke the separation of church and state to keep, to keep uh, from favoring Christianity, we should allow Christianity to be favored um, and, and privileged by government action and government decision. People who are in political power should be allowed to privilege Christianity because after all, that's not what Jefferson really meant. He didn't mean to keep church and state separate. Uh, he meant something else. And so whatever it is that they meant, uh, you know, if you can figure it out from history, then you should uh, allow that to be what guides you. Well, I mean, in, in a sense, there, there is some benefit to knowing what the founders intended. But the thing is, they didn't intend what David Barton uh, wants us to believe they intended. With this revisionist history that we find in David Barton, uh, what are some of the big claims, aside from that Jefferson didn't want separation of church and state, are there other large claims that you see as recurring themes coming up in Barton's work and, and others like him? Well, there's uh, the claim that the Congress 
um, uh, paid for and, and uh, printed the first English language Bible in America for the use of schools, that they you know, set out deliberately to do this for public schools. When, in fact, the person who did publish the first Bible, they, he, he went to the Congress and he, he wanted them to make him the official Bible printer of the new republic. But they declined to do that because they, they weren't going to have a Bible printer. The guy was a person who printed their minutes, but he was also a religious guy and he was a printer and he, he printed uh, at his own expense, he printed uh, a Bible and he uh, you know, asked them to consider endorsing it and, and making him the official Bible printer. Well, they declined to do that. They did uh, put a kind of a commendation. They gave him a commendation that he was free to, to put in the Bible. And he said, they said, this is a, a really, you know, good artistic Bible and, and it's great for religious purposes. But that whole notion of it being for the use of schools was something he wrote to them. They didn't write it to him. So Barton constructs things, takes things and kind of mixes them all up and makes us a narrative out of it that seems good for his purposes, but it's not actually what happened. And that's one of them. And with Jefferson, uh, he said Jefferson was the superintendent of the D.C. schools when he was president. And the president did have some, uh, you know, D.C. being, of course, where the president uh, lived. Jefferson did have interest in the D.C. schools, but he was there for a while. And then, of course, went back to Monticello when he was done with his terms. Um, but uh, Je Barton says that Jefferson uh, inserted the Bible as a part of the instruction in D.C. schools. Well, later, after Jefferson left, the uh, people who were in charge there did, did include the Bible as part of the uh, reading curriculum. But Jefferson had nothing to do with that. It's, it's like, well, Jefferson was once there. Then later the Bible was there. Well, they were in the same town. And so somehow that means that Jefferson had something to do with it. You know, the, the, the logic is so weird and flawed. Uh, but he tells that narrative, you know, because Jefferson was once superintendent. Somehow that meant that he was responsible for the Bible being involved in the schools. Well, he, he never was. In fact, Jefferson said... Uh, he wrote very specifically that he wouldn't trouble elementary school kids with the Bible in their curriculum. He would rather them read other things. Uh, it's, it's, uh, those are just a couple of things. There are so many more. This seems to come up a lot in American Christian nationalist circles in the argument for prayer in school and the Bible in school. Right. You know, make appeals to some of Barton's work. You know, the founders wanted the prayer and the Bible in school. And it it is usually coupled with a, a statement along the lines of things have been going downhill ever since we outlawed the Bible in school. And mm -hmm. just in that little turn of phrase, it gives the assumption that somewhere along the way it got outlawed. Uh, now, at least where I'm at uh, here in Phoenix, you can take Bibles to schools. Oh, sure. You, sure. It's not outlawed. Uh, that children, right. students can pray. But what they are not, where there's restriction is what the teachers and the authorities are allowed to force the children to do. 
And this comes down to parental rights, the expectations that we have in this pluralistic society of what's going to be taught or, mm -hmm. and what's compulsory and what's not. Right. And there does seem to be an argument very similar to what you've mentioned that, well, it used to be that we had the Bible in schools and prayers in schools. Jefferson did it. Everybody did it. We lost our way and we need to get back to our roots. And functionally, that seems to be how this revisionist history works in the average person who's giving themselves over to it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that Barton seems to do and others in his lane is they will proof text little snippets like what you just said. They'll mix, mix and match little quotes, but it's also rapid fire. I mean, every presentation I've sat in, I've, I've seen Barton live multiple times. I watched his videos. It's a deluge of, I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's a flood of information. You can't even make sense of it. How does that impact the hearer? You know, I, I've watched David speak to rooms full of, you know, a thousand or more people. That rapid fire pacing, what's that doing to people? Well, um, the psychological studies of uh, persuasion show that speakers who speak quickly and competently, uh, who speak in the way that he does, are judged to be more, have a higher expertise than speakers who don't. Uh, you can say almost anything in a speech if you master the method. You know, the, the medium is the message in a way. Uh, I think it was Marshall McLuhan that said that. And there's some truth in that, in that the way that the message is delivered makes a big difference in the way that people pick it up and are persuaded by it. And so he is able to take a, a narrative make it uh, internally consistent. Uh, it seems to make sense, in other words, and deliver it in a, in a way that is quick and it's, he sounds very confident in the way he delivers it. He'll say, you know, he'll say that the liberals say this and, and that's not true. Here's what the truth is. And then he delivers you a narrative you know, flawlessly delivered. And yes, people listen to that and think, wow, I never knew that. I never heard that. Well, the reason you never knew it or heard it's because it's not true. And uh, that's the, uh, that's been his uh, strength really as a sort of a missionary for the, the belief that there is no church and state. The other thing he does is he presents half truths, you mentioned the idea that uh, we've all gone to hell in a handbasket since uh, the Supreme Court took so-called uh, took it out of Bible reading and prayer out of school. He used to show a chart. I don't know if he does it anymore, but he would start in the 1960s uh, right alongside those Supreme Court decisions where uh, prayer and Bible reading were at least school-led prayer and Bible reading were taken out. You can still read your Bible in school and you can still pray in school. And he would show the crime rate, you know, climbing uh, from 63 to the 90s. But then he'd stop. His chart stops at the 90s. Well, if you, if you let that chart go on to the current time, you see it goes down. 
you know, it goes from 63, it goes up, peaks in the 90s, and then it comes right back down to almost where we were. We're almost there. Now, we've had a little uptick of late with, uh, you know, the pandemic and so forth with certain certain things, but the murder rate's just about where it was in the 60s. Well, how do you explain that? The Bible didn't go back in to schools in an illegal sense or, you know, school-led prayer, school-led Bible reading or anything like that. The other thing that he uh, fails to tell his followers is that the Bible was not in every school uh, in the 60s. Uh, the, they, it had, as far as uh, public uh, support and school-led Bible reading, uh, a lot of schools had taken it out in the late 1800s. You know, he never talks about the Cincinnati Bible Wars, for instance, or the New York Bible Wars, where in Cincinnati, anti-Catholic sentiment led uh, the Protestants there to, this is late 1800s, led them to implement Bible reading. And the Catholics were upset because their version wasn't being used. And so they were uh, thinking, well, we're going to take our kids out and put them in parochial schools. And, uh, but that was a problem for the, the public schools because that, you know, they didn't, they were losing students. Well, so there's a big war about what version to use and whether to use Bible reading at all. Eventually, there were lawsuits that uh, went to the Ohio Supreme Court. And the upshot was that no, no Bible versions were going to be used because it was, according to the Ohio Supreme Court, not constitutional to have a mandatory Bible reading. And it was Christians that argued against it, argued against Bible reading. There's some beautiful Presbyterian argumentation against Bible reading in public schools. Uh, if you read those, those court cases uh, in the Cincinnati Bible War. So, you know, they, they, that was already happening long before uh, the early 1960s. And Barton will never tell you that. It does seem, doesn't it, that history is much more complex than we like to think. Oh, yes. And uh, just try to correlate the crime rate with, with, with those occurrences. You can't do it. I mean, you, or at least the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You don't yeah. see any, any uh, important relationship between uh, crime rate and the society and what the schools are doing with the Bible. And it seems like Barton, what he's attempting to do is uh, leverage fear. Oh, absolutely. By, by leaning into the crime rate makes me feel, you know, if I'm an audience member, I'm feeling fear and anxiety about, sure. oh, no, the murder rate sky high. We, and the, so the solution is throw the Bible back in schools. We'll get that murder rate right down, which is an exponentially overly simplistic way of viewing how the world works. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well, if you're, you know, you're a Christian and you think your morality is a good one and it works for you and, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to think that you want people to, you know, be Christian. Sure, he appeals to that part of your thinking that uh, the reason that things are bad right now, and they're always bad. I mean, things are, you can appeal to something's always wrong. You know, Warren, I, uh, chapter three of the Bible, uh, there's some murder happening, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so the audience is just primed and ready to be told that the answer is, you know, get, get Christianity in charge of our public policy 
and then things will be better. Yeah, the fear mongering, the anxiety within the hearers, uh, which is easily manipulated into outrage and action. Yeah, that's I think for many of our listeners, that's that's what they're seeing. They're not sitting in the presentations. They're not on the website. Maybe we see a post here and there that one of our loved ones puts on social media. Would you talk to us a little bit about how you might give us some coaching on how we should approach someone who's been uh, stirred into a frenzy by something Barton or others like him have done? Uh, What's maybe a way that we could uh, be thinking about approaching them as, as we're sitting at the kitchen table conversation and they're rattling off all these things uh, what what might be a good approach? Well, it, it's um, it's so difficult to counter that just off the cuff because they uh, you know they've heard these these facts and it's so hard to have uh, at your disposal you know your fingertips uh, some kind of factual response to that. So uh, I, I guess uh, maybe picking one or two things to say, well, you know, let me look into that. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about uh, that. Uh, let me, let me, can, do you mind if I look into it? Uh, could we talk about that another time? And, and after I am able to explore it a little bit, because again, at, at the moment of encounter like that, the motion's often so hot that even if you have the right answer, it can often degenerate into some, you know, tit for tat and, you know, argument that doesn't lead anywhere. But if you can diffuse the situation by saying, well, I don't, you know, I really don't know, but I sure like to look into it. Or even, you know, once you give me your source, you know, and let them, let them give you a Barton book or let them give you a, an article. And, and then move on to something else. Then you can take that article and go get some facts and uh, say, hey, uh, you know, I looked up that article you, you gave me and uh, a couple of things that it just, I, I got a question on that. And then maybe the, the situation is a little less emotional when you come back to it. Or you can do it in an email or you can, you know, which is less hot, a little cooler kind of environment. If that's really the issue, you know, if the issue is is really the facts, then, you know, you can try to find a cooler way to talk facts back and forth. If the issue is fear, you know, you maybe you can go to that. Well, what are you afraid is going to happen? What do you, because, you know, if I've been around as long as I have. I've been through so many of these scares. Uh, in high school, we were all supposed to, in my high, you know, in my life, uh, everything was supposed to go south. Well, we made it through that. I've been through several uh, times when society was supposed to go to hell. And, uh, you know, it's, we've managed to get through. Uh, the Democrats have been in power, for instance, a few times, and here we are. And, and it'll have, there'll be ebbs and flows of people, different things in the government and so forth. And that may not be a, a great comfort to a young person, but you can provide some perspective depending on where you are in life. And you've seen a few things. And so what is it that really, is it the facts that they want to debate or is it, is it the fear that's the real issue? And so what are they really afraid of? Try to find that out. 
and maybe speak to speak to that. Well, I remember, you know, because because you know there there have been times when we've been afraid of the same thing before, and history can really be a guide because you know we've been afraid of a lot of things in our history, and and things have worked out. Yeah, communicating. If if someone wants to communicate about facts, and we try to communicate from the heart level, we're often missing each other. Yeah, right. And sometimes we're saying facts or things we think are facts, but really we're we're having a heart conversation. And so meeting people where where they're at, even discerning that, I love that input. And as we strive to minister and reach people who are, frankly, being stirred into a, a frenzy of anxiety and rage. Yeah. Usually the facts are just in support of a, a deep heart level emotion and trying to get into that space yeah. uh, can be where the real work and the goodness can happen. So, yeah. well, uh, Warren, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Uh, Wthrockmorton.com is uh, the blog where I, I don't write as much anymore, but um I will be uh, probably as I, I'm about to retire from Grove City College, so I'll probably be writing more uh, as I do. And then SalemGrovePress.com is going to be probably the more the new hub of things uh, as I move away from college here. Well, thank you so much for your many years of work and the gift that you are to the church in America and around the world. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be with you.